Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the East-West Psychology Podcast, the forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Julich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. In this podcast, Stefan and I will be chatting with East-West Psychology PhD student, Riza Tanner, about her unique approaches to birthing through her work as a midwife, doula, and birthing coach. She shares her experiences in learning how to hold space to help mothers feel their belonging during the birthing process, and discusses how birthing can be approached as a form of sacred activism. Riza talks about how to reclaim the deep feminine and the role of the earth as the divine feminine in holistic transformation, which leads us to discuss the necessity of honoring intuitive ways of knowing in scholarship. We end the episode exploring some problems of our times and the importance of the continual development of approaches and strategies to conscious parenting. You know, I've been, uh, I, I'm a student, was a student at the school. I, I, I got my PhD in East-West Psychology, and now I'm work, obviously working in the department. And I've noticed over the years, but especially since I began working with the department, um, that the extent to which the student actually changes the, um, not the face, but internally makes the the student has a has a pretty profound uh, effect on the department so you, you know there's there's a curriculum the curriculum is loose enough that it's that it's it's kind of mobile it's it's uh um, i want to say mercurial that's the wrong word but it's it's definitely uh can move in one direction or another depending on who the students are that come into the program, but also who the f- professors are that come, especially the adjunct professors. And I think that I've seen over time how quietly, it's not, uh, it's not done necessarily through um, political or um, coercive or uh, argumentative means. It's just simply the presence of this particular cohort of students in the program that has a tremendous effect on the program and the emphases that you, you'll find in the program. And I've seen professors change, uh, kind of evolve, and there's this wonderful kind of evolutionary conversation or dance that's going on. And professors leave and students leave and new professors come and new students come. People kind of step into something that already exists and immediately begin to change it. I think that's actually a really beautiful thing 
and at the beginning I was a little resistant to it because I was trying to get my bearings, but I think there's a story that I learned, I think it was something that Trungpa Rinpoche once said, he said, you know, um, in the course of life, you wake up one day and you realize that you've fallen out of an airplane and you have no parachute. Uh, and then you begin to do the work and at some point you realize there's no ground. <laughs> You're okay. So getting to that point in the department with all of the chaos, uh, I think is a really important step to take as a, as a kind of an administrator slash teacher slash student in the, in the program. Yeah, yeah. we're in the business of transformation and to resist it, um, like as a department, would be to intellectualize it and separate ourselves. And I think that's something that I value. And I, it's at different degrees at different times or different speeds, um, but that we are evolving and transforming together because like we can't just study that from afar. Um, there's an embodiment aspect. Also, as you were saying, um, talking about that um, Chumpa Rinpoche um, metaphor, I just read an article about a woman, like a biopic in the New York Times in the last couple of days who did fall out of a plane. The tail of the plane came off and she fell and she was caught by the canopy with very minor injuries and made her way through the jungle, um, walking for 11 days to a village where she had help. And she's still a scientist and runs a center in that part of the Amazon. A really inspiring story, but I think there's this idea that like nobody survives a free fall like that, and or you can't find your way out of the jungle. Um, but here we have like an example, and we can choose to use that as a metaphor um, as well as for inspiration. And like what she had learned and what saved her was find the running water and follow it. And I, I think that on a activist scholar um, journey, there, there's something like find, find where something's flowing and follow that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm all into uh, to thinking about process and flow states. I'm a musician, so it seems like my lens is very naturally um, looking at structure in pro in, in process, you know, and I guess what was coming up when Stefan and, and you were speaking there, um, is going back to sort of what you said about the activism being about a collectivity, you know, the idea that we can all, if we're all just, you know, um, I guess that trapped within our own subjectivity and don't have a way or, or don't have an aspiration to really create webs of collectivities then what does that activism actually do you know and so this this idea there may not be a ground but when you start to create webs of collectivities and you start to create languages and you start to you know undergo the experiments of of, of transformation together then you sort of create a, 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 a like a ground in a sense like it's, it's not uh, the ground but it's a ground you know and I guess that's that would be one way of, of looking at how we can be in these states of flow together, these states of transformation in which, yes, maybe there isn't a ground, maybe there doesn't need to be, maybe we can't know if there is or not some, you know, some of the mystics choose not to name it. Others name it with light, others name it with darkness or chaos or order or truth, you know, but at the, at the end of the day, I think what's even more important is the idea that we are together working on this um, as in collectivities. Um, I was wondering, and now it, like we're talking about collectivities, like 
creating, let's say, webs of languages, webs of of, of practices. Uh, you know, your some of your work is talking about, um, or you were talking earlier about the work of Craig, who's enchantivism, bringing in myth to sort of create that ground, let's say, to create a ground. And it seems as though it would be a nice place to transfer t- or to uh, transition into your, uh, your, the birth work that you do, you know, through the midwifery and then co- coming to become a doula. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you want to get more specific or broad? <laughs> I'm, I might be able to um, come up with something uh, annoying. Let me see. Uh uh, just a few things, because I took some notes while I was reading the the interview that I told you about um, from a fourth trimester podcast. You you said something about in your, uh, I, th- I believe that it was in in uh, reference to the your teaching um, mothers, so being kind of a birth educator, not wanting to tell people how to do things because. I, and I think that you, this is what you were just touching on before. It's this the idea, I mean, it's not an idea, it's real, that if you, if you have a set, a set curriculum and you expect people to follow it, there is a disconnect between the, the, the thought process that's required to actually memorize a, a formula or a recipe and the actual lived experience, which definitely requires us to think on our feet to be uh, to be completely present to what's happening to what's unfolding now, I, I do think that you know Jung often said that that it requires both you know deep study but uh, but also deep presence so the all of the research all of the study all of the experiences that we have, go into making us maybe more facile in the moment we we can react more quickly our, our brains process information maybe faster because we've seen it before in some way I, I don't know but I was thinking that that's the, pretty much the same at EWP that the the more um, and and CIS generally I think the more uh, kind of a, um, a pre-established set of truths or um, set of ideas is imposed upon the student to that extent the classroom doesn't isn't alive and i, I think that that's probably why the curriculum is so so broad so i was i was kind of, i was impressed with that the idea that the map's not the territory and that maps often lie that, that came up in the interview as well and the, the other thing that i really would love for you to, to kind of touch on two things are birth birthing is a hero's journey but also the, the idea of the deep feminine. And I think that you were also alluding to that in a way, it's a, a difference in the way that we approach life generally, the top-down, pre-packaged way of approaching life is very often associated with kind of masculine or masculinist ways of doing things, hyper-intellectual, um, structured, maybe a, a bit afraid of life you know, of what lies beneath the canopy in the jungle. Yeah. Well, I, there's, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there. I, I want to say that the birthing process is a very creative act. Um, and 
while it's it itself can't be contained like it's so expansive that it needs containers it needs people who can um one can lean on and who feels solid. And I think as people go through the birthing process, but any initiatory process, they need to be surrounded by a vessel or a container of people who can hold them. And we've often lost that in this culture. It's either something that's extremely rigid um, or it's just not there. And, and that container needs to be there for what we think of as the different phases of initiation of the preparation the ordeal, which only that person can go through, no one can do it for them, but especially on the other side while they integrate it. And part of like what I'm interested in is helping people with that integration because our culture is failing them, particularly after the birthing process. But I think we have a lot of people with failed initiations or incomplete initiations, and they end up becoming um, the walking wounded and it perpetuates itself. It's like um, it's like an incomplete individuation process and having a bunch of like teenagers who have a lot of gifts that are not honored in our culture, but at the same time who are, would be left on their own to rule the world. And so I think that there's a balance and sometimes we frame it as masculine and feminine and I'm partly in the business of um, reclaiming the, the deep feminine um, but at the same time, I think sometimes that is an outdated model of dichotomies um, that can become self-limiting in itself. So, you know, we could also talk about yin and yang. We could talk about um, in the some of the Toltec teachers talk about warrior and goddess, which is not gendered. Um, but like this, I have this idea of having a container and I think a curriculum can serve as a container. Um, and for teachers having some kind of order that we're working with um, but it needs to have that flexibility if it's too rigid we lose people but sometimes we need to give them just enough that they get a bit of what they think they came for <laughs> before we give them the life skills or the something else um sometimes my one of my mentors pam england who created birthing from within and is she's one of my most influential teachers she talks about um giving people left brain candy so that to put them at ease, to give them the order to prescribe the symptom and let them know like what to expect and give them all the variations so that they can put down their guard and that they can open to what's there so that we can nourish presence, so we can co-create, so that we can become generative um, in classes. And I, I think that particularly with something that's like short-term, like birthing classes, um, I have this little window to give people what they want and what they signed up for, but also something to, ac some accompaniment for their initiation so that they don't end up wounded or traumatized on the, on the other side. You know, as much as I can. I, I mean, I'm. I'm. Uh, it's not. It's not, not my responsibility to prevent that. And like, it would be hubris to say I can prevent it, but to do my little part, um, and like glimpsing and giving them a glimpse of what's to come or resources. Um, so yeah. So I don't know if that speaks a little bit to that model. And one of the things that when I was first attracted to working in birth, I was so attracted to the feminine and this yin and beautiful opening process. And what I realized as an attendant, um, I need to turn it up in, in terms of rooting myself and being very solid and taking on more of the masculine or yang so that they would be free to open. 
Um, so I think the company is being able to dance, but also knowing when to take the lead. Um, so I, and I'm not interested in telling people what to do or how to do it, but I'd rather let them know that I'm here with you. I have your back. I've walked this path. Um, I know the map, but the map is not the territory. And it changes. It, tra it changes swiftly, like going back to like being lost. If I can like the jung jungle metaphor is like you don't step into just like you don't step into the same river twice. You don't step into the same jungle. The jungle um, is changing at an accelerated speed. And every new um, life form is going to do something else like it's in its interactions with the ecosystem. Um, so, I, you know, whatever path I walk with someone, I may know the map really well, but I don't know their journey. Um, but having walked many journeys, I have enough um, solid footing to really be there with them. And I think that's really what many of us really want. I think there are a few things that like humans um, really desire. And um, there's a neuroscience, social neuroscientist, Mark Brady, who I adore. Um, and I've taken some classes with him. He is actually he has a great story because he was a, he was a, a traumatized youth, um, not doing so well and had a couple good breaks and started became a successful um, contractor. And then after a while, that wasn't fulfilling, and he made enough money in Silicon Valley to take a break, and he decided to go to Stanford, um, and he'd been doing groups to help other at-risk youth who were like him, and he went to Stanford for social neuroscientists to become one, and then he stayed there for 10 more years as a janitor, so he could keep learning from all of the great minds. Um, and so one of the things he talks about a lot is what he calls the big brain question. And the big brain question that so many of us are like yearning to ask, probably I would extend his question, not just to our parents, not just to the individuals in our lives, but to the natural world is, are you going to be there for me when I need you? Do you mean it when you say you're going to be there? Do you mean what you say? And are you going to be there for me? Can I depend on you? Can I be vulnerable? Can I be myself? Um, and like just how many of us are yearning for a yes. And even if it's one person at one time and then another at another, or it's Oak tree who's there for them or um, an ancestor, like helping people find the answer. Yes. To that, that big brain question, I think is really important. Um, and also, you know, going back to the, the, like the story of the Buddha receiving enlightenment, which I talk about a lot because the story to me captures the essence of everything um, is when the Buddha was meditating and he sat the night through all these attacks from, you know, the darkness and the demons and he's just still meditating. Like the final, the final dart, the final arrow was like, well, come on, like, who do you think you are to become enlightened? Like, who, who are you to do this? And, you know, instead of intellectualizing or rationalizing or making a case for like, yeah, but I meditated for this long and I did this path and I ate a lot of kale and drank green juice, like whatever it was to like feel worthy and spiritual, like he touches the ground, like the ground is his witness, right? That earth that we all belong to and the earth trembles and a lion's roar emerges from that. And so I think, you know, part of this path is even on a subtle level, helping people like touch the earth and feel their belonging um, to wait for 
what is the lion's roar that's going to emerge from them? Um, that's just that essential belonging that is the birthright of every human. Not not saying we're better than nature, we have the right to take advantage and take more than we need, but just that like simple truth of belonging. And so, so I think in teaching, you know, part of it's also giving space, giving space for people to find their yes, big yes, their big yes question yeses and um, that touch the ground space, even if we're giving them the intellectual um, food that they ask for on another level. Yeah, it seems like in the work that you're describing that you do, there's so much space given for like non- the non-rational because the rational could could be there at all moments and it, it could be latent let's say but the idea of having intuitive space space for things to arise um naturally from other ways of knowing from you know from between affective relationships between people and and knowing that they're held and what what can arise in that kind of space rather than a fear-based space in which a lot of the times in in the fear-based space you can rationalize make decisions but it's not really it's not really that that flowering of individuation it's it's coming from a different different um existential um kind of root altogether but yeah i guess that's i just was wanted to bring that up like the intuitive way of knowing which i actually found that in cis and ewp is very encouraged it's like what are the what are the the conditions and and the ways in which we can learn how to talk about that horizon, you know, and put, put in, in a, in its place, a rational way of knowing, but not allow it to overdetermine other ways of knowing. Um, did you find that you, uh, you were striking a balance in your work and, and how did you, how did you sort of, was that natural for me? It wasn't necessarily so natural. I always, I felt, a musical way of knowing was always there, but the the rational way was sometimes quite overbearing. And it took me a while to start to realize it's okay to, to allow other ways of knowing to really kind of give them the space and say, this is just as valid. Um, even though we're sort of taught, um, you know, within our culture that if it's not rational, it's not as substantial. It's not going to, you know, you're not going to, um, be understandable or you're not going to fit into the the you know more of the scientific paradigm but just some thoughts on that yeah yeah i think i think my journey um at cis and prior has been a lot about deconditioning um what like what what i've been taught about how everything needs to be rationalized and justified and making a case for something intellectually and i'm recovering like it's it's not it's not a done deal um this is like the this is lifelong work and i think part of like the connector connection with indigenous traditions and ancestry and everyone if you go back far enough has some indigenous tradition um that they come from um is to acknowledge these intuitive ways of being and that rational is not the only one. And what we think we know is only a small part of the picture. You know, history is an interpretation and, you know, science is about testing things, but you have to come up with that idea. Some of them come from intuitive hits and then people test them. It's like scientific method. Um, but I think this is a learning to honor these other ways of knowing. And one of the things I loved about the program was 
the opportunity to explore um, both like w traditional women's ways of knowing as well as indigenous methodologies. Um, I think stories are a form of that. Um, testimonials, for, especially from non-literate people. As, and sometimes we have to interpret, like someone else wrote it down for them. Um, embodiment and somatic processes, active imagination, dream work. So I think Jung, in, in terms of like Western recent traditions, I think Jungian um, psychology or analysis like brings in some of those tools that have been further developed. Um, but yeah, it's a process of learning and, and letting go and trying it on. And I definitely think that the some ways that I was oriented before and birth work have helped, helped me have a model for that. You don't think your way through birth. Like the prefrontal cortex is not needed. In fact, it needs to turn off. Um, so like, and helping people to trust their intuition has been, you know, part, part of the work I've had to do. So in order to help others trust their intuition, I have to learn to trust mine. And coming to CIS was an intuitive hit. Um, this program that is kind of like my signature program, Wild Return, um, actually came from a dream. And then talking about it to someone and they reflected back to me. So you're saying you want to do this. Um, it wasn't something that I had thought out and probably most of like the best decisions, big decisions that I've made or um, risks that I've taken were all on intuition. I'm wondering where the, the place of that in the classroom is. This is a question that I'm always asking myself now that I'm teaching more. Uh, I think what I taught years ago as an, as an adjunct at City College in New York. And I, at that point, I was just trying to learn the terrain. I was trying to learn the map and then give the map to the students. And I just felt that this is not working. Nobody was really that interested. Students were there because they had to be. These were required courses, right? Students at CIS come because they want to come. And there's often a tension that arises because students come in and then they're told, oh, I have to use APA? <laughs> what is that? I, just, I thought that I escaped that. You know, I came here because I was traumatized by my writing experiences at, at, in school. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, I guess maybe a three-part question or, or three facets to the question, which are the place of that type of learning in, a, in an institute of higher, higher education um, and how that kind of relates to your work as a doula and maybe um, if, if there's some, not overlap because I'm sure there's a lot of overlap, but some way in which the, the symbols and the metaphors that you're dealing with actually have application in both areas. And then also to maybe take a step back or a little bit deeper and to talk, reflect on your own life path. And maybe uh, if you can articulate ways in which you kind of came to these insights, uh, whether you had to kind of struggle for them, whether they came out of traumatic experiences, whether, you know, how did you deepen into this way of... Um, seeing and experiencing because it seems to me from the little that I know of you and from what I've read that there's a, there's a, a, a universe of experience that's going behind every word that, that you're saying and 
it's really integral in a in a in a, a wonderful way in the way that we want it at CIS for our students to be thinking. So you seem to be, perhaps have embodied that before you came. I don't know. Uh, you've been with us for over over for two years now, right? Two years. So I, there's a question in there somewhere. I know. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're speaking to like the balance in the classroom and I think you named something very real. Um, and professors and academics and people who work for institutions are gonna have their own pressure to figure things out and to fit in. And I saw this with my mother who was a public school teacher where she was caught between doing what she thought was best for the kids, but sometimes not getting, sometimes the kids didn't even want it. And sometimes like the parents weren't there to support it, but the worst was when the administration wasn't even behind the teachers. So she was like fighting in every direction. Um, and I see that with friends who are public school teachers still in New York. Um, but I also think in academia to have a teaching post, there's so many pressures like to fit into what you're given and give this thing to the students. And when you're in a role where people have to be there, it's really hard. So I, I just I just want to acknowledge like no matter what you have to serve up, like if they're there because they have to. And I hear this also um, from my many friends who are therapists who had to do their volunteer or their supervised hours at different institutions where the people didn't want to come there for therapy and they became therapists because they were excited to do somatics and expressive arts and transpersonal psychology with people but that like in that role whatever place they were going to just get their hours they felt limited by that and then the people who came didn't exactly sign up for what they had to offer or didn't even want to go to go to the place so i think that that's really very real and it actually speaks to like surviving in real life like that grit that i mentioned before like we have to have these street smarts we have to still balance an ability to fit in to some extent with the culture even if we're resisting it or fighting it sometimes we stay at the margins um but it's you only have a lucky streak if you're someone at the margins who bring it to the center to share it to people and i think in my own life i've spent a lot of time choosing between fitting in enough so I can give a little bit of the medicine that I, the original medicine that I was born to give, that original medicine that we're all born to give, my, my brand of it, or to stay at the margins with like a smaller audience or a smaller income. <laughs> and being a doula is definitely on the outskirts of that, um, where we don't work for the institutions, but we have to get along with them. So we're welcomed in. So we don't make it harder for our clients or the doulas who come afterwards. Um, so, so I think like as, I think that there are real things that we have to contend with um, and CIS is by no means perfect, but it is, it is unique um, as an institution that allows for this, that allows this kind of space to develop the intuitive, whether it's having classroom time devoted for it in a direct way um, or having the spaciousness for people to find their path, to follow their own interest in what they're going to write out, write about in their papers. It does mean that students are not all coming, like you can't assume that they're all coming with the same foundations or the same approach. So there's a diversity that's worth celebrating, but you know, sometimes it's harder because we can't make any assumptions that all people are oriented a certain way towards any particular topic or have a certain amount of, um, experience in it um so it 
we celebrate it and and it can sometimes be challenging um the other thing you know speaking to like also is that like Jonathan was just talking about relating to music and you were talking about relating to teaching. And for all of us, these are metaphors because the metaphors sometimes capture our truth. And for me, it's birth more than words or a structure. And so being able to lean into the metaphor or into explaining something through a story um, are aspects of that, that intuitive function, or at least that like non-rational function and it's around us more than we think. It's when we recognize it and allow more space for it. I think that's one one aspect. Um, and I also think that soul making is connected with embodiment. And so it's, we're doing the work, um, not just talking about it or thinking about it. And a lot of the people who find their way to EWP also have something going on in the world. And it may not be directly a reflection of what they're studying um but they're mutually influential right so if you're a musician and you're bringing in those metaphors um and that like musical way of relating um to a topic in a class so i don't i don't i i, I could speak to the personal but i don't i think i don't know if that's kind of what you're asking or if i'm sticking with the topic <laughs> I, I guess that i'm i'm kind of tr trying to feel my way in a, a little bit deeper, you know, like beneath the surface and uh, speak from there. But I'm finding it difficult to kind of settle in because there's so much that's happening on the surface. And um, I, th I like the idea of, of what we do, whether we're doing it for money or whether it's our vocation or our, or our passion, that even if we are completely immersed in it, it's still a metaphor. That our action in the world is still a metaphor. That there is, on, on some grand level, um, only one thing that's happening that we're all a part of. Not that we're all doing the same thing. It's not a perennialist approach. It's, you know, like to get a teacher and a student in the classroom and the teacher is in flow and the student is in flow and then they meet one another and it's, you know, there's a kind of a crash that takes place because if the if waves are moving towards one another at kind of oblique angles, there can be like violence. You know, so it's not always smooth. But if you step, but you know, if you go beneath the surface of the water, the currents are much more gentle because we're all drawing from that in some way. So when it rises to the surface and we are becoming what we're becoming, or we're living the life. On the, on the surface, then that's a kind of an image of what lies beneath. So I, I say, I know that that's kind of maybe overly complex, but the reason that I'm saying it is because I'm, I, I'm feeling in, in this conversation, and maybe it's something that I've been thinking about anyway, but that we, you know, the, the, we, the rational mind is a, is a tool for articulating in very particular ways, specific moments or instances or thoughts. And, but it's drawing from that pool, from that flow, from that deep source, that's much more inchoate. It has, it's, the, the experience of it is, is full, it's complete, it's whole, but trying to articulate it, trying to capture it and kind of move it into 
a place where it, it finds expression is a whole other matter. So I think that the first thing that impressed me when I was kind of like trying to figure out who you were so that we could have this conversation was all the different things that you do. And I joked last time we talked about how you had so many different e email addresses. And I thought it's really remarkable because in some ways we're all multiple. We're all multiple, and yet we're, that multiplicity is also drawing on a unity that we feel internally at every moment if we're fortunate, if we're not distracted. So I'm still not quite able to say it, but I think that there's a there there, and there's something about birthing, something about the, the, the fact, maybe it's an idea, that the child comes from a world the child comes from a world that's transcendent of this one. And it's, it's organically cons constructed as a bad word, but it, it's woven out of um, the, the deepest, um, the deepest places of existence, you know, the archetypal world, but also the instinctual world and how all of that stuff kind of like comes together to form that this individual individuality that once they come into the world there's this i mean you could see it when my daughter was born i could see it in her eyes there was she was still she was coming from somewhere else and little by little over the course of time like every five minutes she would you mentioned something in this other um interview where you were talking about um mommy brain i think kind of this if this happens in the mother that the brain actually shrinks after birth but i could see it in the child also i could see that with my my daughter that her body would she would like retract and then expand and then retract again and then expand so somehow i'm trying to articulate this i know i'm doing a really horrible job but it seems to me that this is the path that we take through life and this is what EWP and what CIS actually is there for, in a way, to help students live through this process. Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. Is that when we start to give language to things, they, it's like in that rational world. Sometimes it's hard to like keep the essence of it, but we need to so that we can talk about it. Um, and that you were talking about the rational mind. It's really about like divisions, right? So that we can make sense of things and labels and it, it's really like we need it but it's, i think it's important to also take that step back and see the holism and that there is something underneath in the water um and birth is a really powerful example of this and you know i'll, I'll say something personal because i don't really i don't usually talk about my own birth particularly as a birth worker or someone who has quote unquote rank in a classroom um if, if I'm teaching, but there was a moment before my son was born and where, you know, you could say that his crown chakra was aligning with my root chakra. But if you really think about it, it's like that, like, um, like six point star of two triangles, right? Like there's like perfect alignment and balance, um, in that. And it was, it was transcendent. It was like, it was oneness with everything. Um, and then he slipped out and we are we're into separation. And I actually think that this culture premature, and I think birth becomes a really important metaphor for us because it is an embodied process that so many people go through. 
And then we look at how much the culture has messed around with birth, right? And we, we do it, we use fear as a way to do this and to control people's bodies. Um, and this fear is rooted in things like you might die, birth is really dangerous. And it does have risk. It is inherently risky. So is life. Like the natural world, like we like to think of it as like benevolent and lovely because we look at it from an armchair on nature shows, but like really being in the wild, it, it is, it's transcendent and you are doing it as an embodied individual. And it's not like all sweet and pretty, even if it's all, all like, awesome and inspiring and breathtaking. And I think that that's true about birth. Birth is as safe as life gets. Um, at the same time, the way that it's been positioned, like the things that have made birth safest are hand washing and antibiotics, not all the ways that we meddle in it. Um, and actually the United States, which, which United States, which, which spends some of the most money of any industrialized country on the birth process has one of the highest rates of like infant and maternal mortality, right? So we haven't actually made it better, but we have these myths. And one of the things we've done is we've prematurely separated the baby from the mom or the baby from the, the pregnant parent. Um, we have surveillance from the time that the baby or fetus is like really tiny, right? Just from a few weeks, they, they, we have surveillance and we use ultrasound and we're watching them over time. And we start to talk about the baby and mother as if there's something separate, but without the mother, there would be no baby. The baby's completely dependent. And in those ultrasounds, the image of the mother becomes black space, emptiness. And in the famous like early photos in the 1960s of the baby um, in the uterus, like where they used ultrasound technology was on the cover of Life magazine. Um, they actually manipulated the photos to look like the baby was floating in outer space. And these photos came out within a few years of the first Earthrise photos where we have humans floating in space, taking a picture of Earth as if they're separate from Earth. That even though they're outside of Earth, they were still dependent on Earth, right? The oxygen in their space shuttle came from Earth. <laughs> they couldn't replenish it on its own. And so these, these rationalizations or these false separations, um, if they're not looked at holistically, I think they lead to that sense of severance and alienation. And I think that prematurely uh, um, separating baby and mom is contributing to that. I think the same thing happens with the earth. We think we're separate from the earth while we're completely reliant on her. And people use that as a justification or a rationalization um, to cause harm, to extract, to, to be greedy about it. And that as we sort of like dip into the wholeness, right, or under the surface, like we see that it's connected, like that it's not separated and partly these transcendent experiences of sometimes giving birth or meditating or um, ways that we access the non-rational can help bring us back into that connection. And, and, you know, and no criticism or judgment to people who are birthing with technology because that's what they've been conditioned um, to believe that they should do. And sometimes that feels right to them. Um, but we are, you know, just to point out statistically, 
in this country, 30% of people give birth by cesarean. So their baby, and sometimes it's needed, but even the World Health Organization says once we're above a 15%, the risks are more than the benefits, right? There, there's no way to justify that. In China, it's 50% of people birth by cesarean. In Brazil, it's 90%. And so when we so we have these interruptions, like sometimes needed, but mostly overused, like, and we start to go into that as a metaphor, um, like what can we say about like the evolution of humans and how we relate to wholeness, how we relate to belonging, like touching the earth. Um, 80 to 90% of people birthing in the United States birth with an epidural. Um, it's a wonderful medication so that people who are, you know, who can't cope with the intensity, even though m most of our ancestors did, um, don't have to feel it. So they're, they're actually numb, right? And when we're numb and our bodies are still like, that's what happened. That's a freeze response. That's a trauma response. So these, these, this moment, this moment that you're talking about of like coming into the world, right? Like, and is happening with someone in a um, constructed trauma position or experience um, and machines going beep and, you know, strangers around. So again, I don't want to say that this should never happen or anyone to feel criticized who births that way, because that is 99% of the population, only 1% birth out of hospital and around 10% birth with midwives, even in hospitals. Um, but it, it, I think it begs us to, like, as a metaphor, ask the, ask the question, like, if this is what's happening at the beginning, um, how is that, how is that shifting how we relate to ourselves, to each other, to our place in the world? It seems as though, you know, the way that you were describing that separation, that, that, that false separation, uh, the way in which we will inframe concepts like a mother and child it's it's taking the ecology out of it and so i think you know we've been talking about nature the earth uh nature being a, a huge part of your work as well but but it just seems like the ecological model is 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 necessary more than ever not only for to understand our relationship to the environment you know how can we learn from the, the ecology in nature and but just how can we how can we understand our, our like culture, society, mother, child, like, like how can we get a little deeper into saying, well, it's not just mother and child, but there's a whole ecology that surrounds all of this. That's all sort of co-creative and interdependent. And that's what was coming up for me. Um, I've, I've been trying to do some research on sonic ecology. How can we think of sound ecologically? There's some other scholars doing that. And it's quite fascinating because, I mean, I've, I haven't really grown up with that language, with that imagery, with the this, these types of um, these types of ways of trying to feel and think things through. But it, it just seems like that word ecology would would be uh, something to describe the process that you are you're talking about. Very much, we are ecosystems, right? Ecos meaning home. For my daughter, when uh, so she was born in 1980. I want to say 1985. Uh, so we had a, a, I think that she was a doula. I'm not sure that she was a, a midwife. Um, I don't know if there was, was there a distinction back then, probably, but she worked at home. Uh, 
not in a hospital that I that I know of. But she worked in conjunction with the hospital, so they had a they had a fairly close relationship. The hospital was Saint Vincent, Saint Vincent's Hospital down in the village in New York City. And we had to make two trips, I think, into the hospital to meet with the pediatrician. There was a preliminary conversation, and then there was uh, just like a week before the birth to check the position of the child, to make sure that the birth looked like it was going to be safe. And my daughter's mother, um, her her mother had three children, and not one labor was longer than three hours. They were all very short labors, so. When she was speaking to the pediatrician, pediatrician, obstetrician, she uh, she basically told him that she expected that her labor was going to be short, and he laughed and he said, "Why do you think they call it labor?" But she was, you know, determined, and it turned out that the labor was only two hours. I mean, it was pretty extraordinary. Um, uh, so I, it just struck me that what you were saying, that the, the idea that, I mean, even in, even in the word that's used to describe the experience, and I, this is not taking away from the fact that from, for many women, it is laborious and it can take days. I, I met a woman once who was 10 months pregnant. She could not give birth and she did not want to have the baby cut out of her. And she was doing everything that she could, like taking miles and miles of walks a day and eating okra, whatever it was that she needed to do. And I don't know what happened because I, I only met her once. Um, but that kind of dedication to make sure that she had a natural birth, but the child was growing larger in her womb every day. So I'm not sure what happened. But with, uh, with our child, it was not, I can't say that it was a labor. In, in that way, but it was definite, definitely a, a pretty profound experience for the, for the mom, uh, but maybe not as dark as kind of you said that sometimes it can be, as, as you know, it is dangerous, it is blissful. I mean, I'm speaking as an outsider, it was pretty blissful for me as well. But I never felt once throughout the entire experience, and maybe this was just my own ignorance, that there was any danger attached to it at all. Yeah. I mean, every birth is different. Um, and I think part of this like culture of giving people formulas um, and then the formula doesn't match and the way they understand it is I've been betrayed or I did something wrong. There's something wrong with me. And part of my approach is not giving people recipes, like if you do this and that, even to say if you get rid of fear, which some approaches like hypnobirthing is has some wonderful exercises and preparations that work for some people, but not others. Um, but a lot of people who either the way it's conveyed to them or their understanding is, you know, you can be blissed out and have a Zen birth if you do this, this and this, or if you change your thinking or through positive thinking. And then some of those people are even more traumatized because they're not prepared. But I think that we, our bodies, our physiology is very influenced by fear, which Clarissa Pinkola Estes says that fear is um, not enough information. Um, and I also like the acronym um, fear, 
um, is future or false or fantasy. So future events appearing real, right? So it's not what's happening in this moment. It's what might happen and all the imaginings. And that really does have a physiologic effect. If we think we see a tiger, but it's really a pussycat with a shadow, um, we're going to have the same physiologic response. And in a process like this, um, where our bodies want us to be safe, people can be affected. So there's so, but there's so many things to account for, but we have this extreme fear. We have disconnect from the natural world. We tell people to trust their bodies, but every other message tells them not to. You're too fat. You're too thin. Um, your appetite is too big, but we're going to give you addictive foods and substances. And then you feel bad that you can't control yourself. Um, you should, you should be able to sit in a desk and sit still all day. And, you know, answer 1,000 emails. Like, so all the messages are counter to what our bodies are telling us. The beginning of pregnancy positions an outsider as the expert and not the person whose body it is. And so we're not really trained either in intuition or listening and following our body's urges. And there's a doctor, I have her name right here. Sorry, I'm blanking on her name. It'll, it'll come to me. I'll have to look. It's just on my bookshelf. Um, but she coined the term nocebo. Like it, there's a placebo effect that in general, it depends what kind of medicine, but in general, it's about 30% of the time that people get better. It's because of a placebo effect. But there's actually like a negative one called nocebo where with just as much as we can plant the seed for someone to get better, we can plant the seed for someone to get ill right? Or psychosomatic or think there's something wrong with them. You know, if you put someone in a room with a bunch of people in white coats with their arms crossed, kind of looking at them and who honestly believe in, in their heart of hearts that birth is an emergency waiting to happen. Um, what is that subtle message sending to their bodies? Um, and so I'm not saying everyone should birth at home, although I do think it should be available as a viable option for a lot more people um, and a safe one um, for relatively healthy people. Um, and I think it should be accessible financially. So that's another part. You know, most people have to pay out of pocket four to six thousand dollars or more for a home birth midwife. Um, so there's there, there's a lot of obstacles, right? Like there's the social and the believing that you don't need a certain kind of expert. Um, and we've been taking all of these these influences in. But I, but I think that there's a lot that people have to contend with to get to a place like where you can open, where you can be that vulnerable. And I, when I teach birthing classes and we talk about the first stage of labor, which is commonly, you know, understood as the time that the cervix is opening so that the baby can come through like birth during pregnancy, the body makes a security system to keep the baby inside and birth or labor is the opening of that security system. So the baby has a path out that that opening of the cervix isn't just the cervix. It's like the opening of our hearts. It's the opening of our minds. And like, how can your mind not be blown open by the fact that a human being that you've maybe known on some level, but like you're, you're going to know them now on the outside, like that you're going to start one people at the one person or one body at the beginning of this process and then have two that can separate. Um, how can your mind not be open by the ways you might act or cope um, 
or or um, the sounds you might make. And how do you open if your heart isn't open to the people around you or the environment around you, right? And it might be a slow um, flowering, but I think it's all opening. And I think maybe that's part of the psychic worth in, in work involved in a birth journey that's less mechanized. Um, so, you know, and walking in pre-open, <laughs> trusting the process, trusting your body, trusting your what your grandma told you, um, you know, that works towards opening. Maybe our natural state is in the world is to be open, but we've just been so wounded and so beat up that we that we close and maybe it isn't safe to walk around totally open all the time. Um, and so, so how do we strategically do that? Or how do we do that? Right. Like a warrior's back and a goddess's front. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because there needs to be this idea, like we've, you were bringing up this idea that everything out there in our environment is not for our best interests. So the, like the idea of being conscious about what is, what is here to help and to create an environment of support like you said, and something, uh, a place or a, p- a posture towards life and a, a place in which we can, we can cultivate this posture so that we can become intuitive and, and listen in different ways. But there's also um, a part that is not working t- towards our best, uh, our well being, right? And I guess we've talked about that uh, last time uh, about conscious parenting being conscious as opposed to unconscious there's forces out there that are 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 waiting to take advantage of unconsciousness right um and i guess maybe we we're coming to the end of our time together but i i thought maybe we could you know we've been bringing up a little bit of the that horizon the critical horizon that needs to be sort of also um sort of consciously brought into the the frame um, to work against the institutionalization of things that are not for our best interests. Um, and I'm, I've returned home and uh, I've been spending time with my nieces and nephews in the last uh, week. And it's been fantastic. It's, it's amazing to, uh, to, to be around children again. And I, I, but I do feel that is, I feel the struggle in my own life, just in my own adult life about, there that horizon that idea of like i need to carve out space from modernity from this cultural container because there's a lot that is working uh, against the way that i want to become there's a lot of things that are mining my data that are trying to fill me with desires and like you said to wear me down take my energy make me feel insecure sell me things and so i guess just maybe some words about how to how to how to engage in conscious parenting in a way that we can we can inspire and and allow that like create that space carve that space out for children but also also help teach them that they need to be they need to be strong like you said a warrior's back you can you, you always need to have that in this world any thoughts along those lines yeah um well first you know stefan's the one who's raised <laughs> adults i've only raised a 10 year old um and it's i think it's almost harder in some ways that more people are trying to find their way and there isn't a formula and so one of the things that i do is i bring new um new mothers into nature and we do these deep deep sharing and nature connections and gentle hikes 
And I like to like help them or facilitate time spent with like natural elements. And I think that they have wisdom for us. And so a couple of examples that I think might land are, um, as you were talking about this, like how, you know, how how to be a mom. I think we can learn from the oak trees and what people call poison oak. And so poison oak, like a lot of us are like, oh, I want to avoid it. It's bad. Um, But some people call it guardian oak. And the idea is that we want to be in right relationship with it and we want to respect it. And it grows in places that have had excess disturbance. And so so in those places need to regenerate and they need to be protected. Um, And so it's there as a buffer. It also blends in very easily with whatever area it's covering. Like it can blend in here with blackberry and raspberry bushes. It can also look like oak. Um, And so like learning from how does it fit with the environment? Um, How does it create a boundary of protection? And that there are people who come into right relationship with it who don't have, um, don't feel the effects of it. Um, particularly like indigenous communities sometimes use it as a filter, like they can touch it and um, they use it as a filter when they're um, washing the acorn mush before they eat it, which was part of a a staple part of their diet. So it actually could be a friend um, with that proper approaching. Um, And so I think that as a parent, um, you know, we want to watch for the boundaries and make sure there isn't things being excessively bothered. And the other, you know, with the oak trees, like going back to that acorn mush, because it's such a, like here in California, um, it was such a staple for the native peoples that they, they create a lot of acorns and they drop them to the ground. And if they're not gathered by the people or the animals, the soil is like, can tell because it changes the makeup of the soil and that sends a signal to the, the tree to make less acorns the following year. And this, it's a symbiotic system that is based on what the need is. And I think that as we raise children, that's really important to be able to gauge, like, what do they need? Like, not giving them too much, right? Sometimes we talk about benign neglect, like, give them an opportunity to grow. And sometimes we need to be stretched and have some kind of stressor in order to get stronger, right? Just like our muscles, like we lift weights because we're, we're creating stress and then we get stronger as a result, but also not giving too little, especially before they're really resilient um, and grit. We want to keep enough of a container so that they can feel safe. So they develop that resilience, right? So we don't want to take it away too soon and just throw them to the wolves. Um, so I, yeah, th- I guess that's where I would go. Um, I'm reminded that uh, last week in the preliminary conversation, we got through the hour and half or however long we talked. And at the very end, you said, oh, but I haven't really talked about what I really wanted, wanted to talk about and the work that you're doing right now. So I'm, one, you haven't like, articulated that you've touched on that during this conversation. So I want to make sure that you have the opportunity to speak about what's most alive for you right now, if you haven't. I think what's most alive is the integration of these different facets um, and part of like, I think there's so many ways that in EWP or the kind of people who are attracted to this program and the work that they do is inter- integrative and transformative um, and that it 
and it's process work as opposed to about like results, but that we have this space um, to bring the different parts of ourselves um, as well as like multiple disciplines and ways of, of seeing. And so maybe that's what really just, I think maybe that's what feels most important. And that's as these activist scholars that we're then bringing that back out into the world. It's not just meant to sit in scholarly articles um, that, you know, 10, 10 specialists are going to read. Celtic story about the Shannon River and how it got its name from this goddess Shion. She, she was the daughter of one of the water gods. She was the daughter of one of the water gods, so she was more minor. And the story is that she went to the river and at the bottom of it is this tree of knowledge and these um, salmon that eat the fruit, so they have knowledge. Um, and there's a whole mythology around this. Um, and that she went to it wanting knowledge and when she went to take one of these um, fruits to eat it that she had crossed some kind of prohibition and she became one of the river as a punishment but there are other people who said that's not really the story um, the story wasn't that she had broken any rules or that she was being punished, but that when she went to the river and had had this fruit, that like her mind expanded so much that like the ultimate knowledge is oneness, and that is why she became one with the river. And so we were speaking about the depths and also these um, structures that confuse us or condition us to be a certain way and intuition and like what's happening underneath that story came to my mind. And I don't know, I haven't, I don't, I don't think we can force stories to mean something. Um, we, then we overinterpret them and we kill them, but there's something really powerful for me in this story. Um, about that that connection and um becoming one with the river right the intersection of of the the human and the, the and nature and the non-human i guess right yeah yeah and the, maybe the allusion to you know the apple of knowledge in the garden of eden and pandora's box and the forbidden but it's also like looking at it from that other side um, that like the ultimate truth, like when we know all, it is that merging with everything. Mm-hmm. You've become cosmic. When you were telling the story, I was, I was immediately, of course, as a Westerner, I would go, I went right to the garden uh, story. And I, I was thinking that in some ways, and I think that we kind of touched on this during the conversation that, that uh, we're born into separation it's it's just part of life that biting that apple that is essentially the what sets the whole thing in motion 
brings us out of the ideal state of the, the garden and into material existence, into manifest existence. In some ways, this is a necessary path. This is, it's, I mean, well, whether it's necessary or not, we're in it. And the, the experience, the overall experience that we have in our culture is one of alienation and separation, but it seems to be global. I mean, you mentioned a, something, a story or something that's happening in China. We were saying that, that China has 50% of their births are cesareans. There is a way in which every culture and in every religion, I mean, it's even there in Buddhism, this idea that the earth is somehow, even, even the, though the Buddha touches the earth as his witness, in Buddhism itself, there is the idea that life embodiment itself, there's something wrong, that we're separate from the source. There are in Zen sects, for instance, where the monks spend their lives meditating, sitting on their coffins. This idea that there's something, this embodiment itself, that there's something wrong. It's a very Gnostic, some some forms of Gnosticism um, attitude towards towards the world, and yet, and yet, if if the path is followed fully, ultimately it comes full circle, and. It's almost like a spiral, you know, so that we come back to the beginning, but in, at, a, at a higher level. I don't like to talk in kind of hierarchical terms, but at a, at a more fully integrated level. And that's where the oneness comes in. So, that, I mean, that's the hope anyway. Sometimes it does seem that way. Sometimes it seems like, nope, it's just going to be, it's nothing but alienation from here on in. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. One one hopes that, that there is uh, ultimately a wisdom that's at work, and we're pa we're just going through a passage, maybe a necessary passage. Maybe not necessary. The mother used to say, you know, there's a straight way and there's a meandering way. She'd mm -hmm. say, I, I really recommend the straight way if you can take <laughs> the direct way, which is just surrender. But she said most people seem to need the me meandering path. And as a representative or as the embodiment of the Divine Mother, she felt that for her children that she just had to say yes to the path that they chose through life. Mm. So, anyway, sorry yeah. we're talking think, again. Yeah, I think I'm a fan of the um, meandering path. <laughs> I don't feel like I have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to just share, um, uh, I'll, t I'll tell it very quickly, the birth experience of my daughter. I just kind of like w wanted to share this. And it's something that you were, we were talking about, this kind of tension between structure and chaos, if you want to call it that, or the imposition of structure as, as opposed to my, my more kind of natural organic flowing. The... <laughs> We went to a birth educator, and the birth educator taught us to time contractions, right? So we were told when the contractions get to five minutes, that's when you call the midwife. And because we were home, and uh, the midwife was in, we were in Manhattan, she was in Brooklyn. She said, you, you, you need to do that because it's going to take me a half an hour to get to you by the subway. So because I had no experience and because I'm generally fairly dumb uh, until I kind of learned things by rote my partner came home from she was working until the, the night she gave birth she came home from work at uh, two in the morning she was a bartender believe it or not and two hours later her water broke 
no, I'm sorry, she came home and her water broke as soon as she got into bed. And two hours later, she went into labor. And so it's around four in the morning or something like that. And we're trying to time the contractions and the contractions just are not getting to five minutes. So she, we didn't we didn't know what to do. We thought we I was scurrying around the apartment. We had to wash the sheets in vinegar. We had to make sure that all of the tools were there's some kind of tool that sucks mucus from the baby's mouth if, if or noses if necessary. Um, so many years ago, I don't even remember the names of these things anymore. But the uh, I'm I'm kind of puttering around and doing that, and my partner is in the bathroom because the toilet was the only hard seat in the house so she was feeling really comfortable with it there and I'm out in the living room and she hollers I think the baby's coming now we haven't called the midwife yet because the contractions never reached five minutes and I said how could the baby be coming the contractions never reached five minutes she said you better come here because the baby's crowning so I she said first call Sandra so I called called Sandra and she and she I said the baby's coming. She said, well, why didn't you call me? I said, well, we were waiting for the contractions to get to five minutes. They never got to five minutes. She said, what are you talking about? She said, where, how did they start? When, was, when were the first contractions? I said, we timed them. They were about a minute apart. And then it went to like a minute and a half. And then it went back to a minute. And, and she said, they're supposed to start like a half hour apart and you're supposed to count down to five minutes you idiot. Get off, get off the phone. I'll see you in 20 minutes. And we were alone. We thought, uh, we didn't realize that she was, her contractions were going to start at one minute. They didn't think to tell us this because it's not something that normally happens. So just to make a long story short, we were in a bathroom. It was a Sunday morning in Manhattan at 7 in the morning, and the, the building was completely quiet, completely quiet. You could hear a pin drop, and the, and the baby came, our daughter came, and I swear that the room itself was dark, was light, and when she came, her body was dark, and I felt the light in the four corners of the room coalesce in the corners, and I felt what, to me, and I was very secular, I was not, I had spiritual inclinations and I read a lot, but I was not a religious person, but there was an angel in each corner of the room, and they were singing, they were intoning, magnificent it sounded like a full choir but there were these angelic presences and the light from their bodies entered into our daughter and when the the room was light and she was dark suddenly she was light and then the room was dark around us and she was she just began to glow with this extraordinary light and she looked like a a butterfly emerging from a chrysalis i mean her whole body was like this and it began to unfold it was such an extraordinary experience that I, I, I can't believe that human beings, that, that we don't want this experience or that we're afraid, that we fear it. And I understand things go wrong and I w wouldn't want anybody to suffer at all. And she was born with the cord around her neck and I just kind of took her and did this and the cord was no longer around her neck. But Every step of the way, we were, were people were told when we told this story to people, they said we should have been afraid. You know that we were doing it at home. We we I, we didn't have the support. We stupidly didn't time the contractions correctly, and yet there wasn't a moment during this whole process where we didn't feel like we were being held. Now, you could tell me if this is 
unusual, but it seems to me if you surrender to it, that there's a higher wisdom or a deeper wisdom that's that's taking place. It seemed that way to me, but I tell myself all kinds of things all the time, and I don't know that they're, whether they're true or not. And disasters happen, horrible things happen. Yet this was a miracle that, you know, a, a, probably the greatest miracle that I was ever witness to, I think has to have been. Thank you, thank you. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful story and birth. And it clearly is like you hold so much reverence for that experience. And I think that that story is really powerful. And I would hope more people would hear your story and stories like that. Um, and know to hold it with reverence. And also that like your story is not their recipe, right? It's like when they literalize it and, you know, and it becomes like, well, if you do this, then that, um, that's where we have problems, just like them saying. And then also just uh, even the metaphor of like people wanting to inject fear into it. Like you are irresponsible by not ha being afraid <laughs> and like, like really like taking a step back and like hearing that. And what they're really saying is I'm afraid I've, and I've been conditioned to carry a lot of fear and I don't know what to do with it. So I'm going to share some <laughs> or try to, um, right. Instead of like letting that, that be, I feel like that's almost as much like that. And then when pieces, like you had this beautiful experience and it, other people couldn't even hold it. So it's almost like I could see how it would be something also to like hold close to your heart because it's so special. Um, and people don't know what to do with it. Cause it's like too many steps away from what they've played over in their head so many times. And I think, you know, at the other end, and I won't tell this story, but at the other end, I was alone with my father when he passed. I mean, my mother was in the house, but I was staying with him in his bedroom. That was another miraculous experience, the, almost the opposite, where his body was light when he passed, it turned dark and the light passed out of him into the room. But I remember thinking, uh, this was long after the birth of my daughter, that, that these are bookend experiences, these are both births, and that we, uh, as a culture, um, and maybe as a race, we, we fear a, one half of the experience of what it means to be alive. And because of that, we make a problem. We, we pathologize nature, we pathologize these experiences. And um, I don't know, from that moment when my father passed, that, I, I realized that even though I have fears and stuff, there's nothing to be afraid of. This is this is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Coming in and going out in in some ways in the in the same way, you know? The light entering and then light leaving. Yeah, it's beautiful, yeah. yeah. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Riza. It's been an amazing conversation today. I'm really, really super inspired and uh I think we touched upon a lot of, of different uh, territories. Can, can you tell us a little bit about where people can find you in terms of uh, some, maybe some websites, uh, Stefan mentioned different projects you have on the go. Maybe you can just sort of end by, uh, by uh, telling interested listeners where they can find you and, and, and really uh, more about that. Sure. So locally I have, a website that reflects in-person offerings. Um, it does need to be updated. 
and I do Maya abdominal therapy. I'm a practitioner, and that helps people to heal around reproductive issues, digestive issues, anatomical ones, like in their belly, abdomen, and back. And I'm now starting to see um, people who, like not just women. So I've been devoted to seeing women, so I'm starting to see more people. And I also occasionally attend some births as a doula. I teach regular birthing classes independently and at natural resources. And then I work online as a coach and a facilitator. Um, and the pathways that I'm working with are mindfulness and mythopoetics, as well as embodiment. And I work one-on-one -on -one and small groups. I have a program called Wild and Rooted, where we work within the framework of a story um, for deep sharing and connection and explorations. And I also um, am currently meeting online for Wild Return, which is the nature program. It's kind of ironic that it's online, but we'll be back outside in the fall. Um, and that'll be in the Bay Area, in the East Bay, San Francisco, and sometimes Marin. And so I can be reached um, through my websites. Um, the local one is Seed in the Garden. Um, one sentence, seedinthegarden.com and at risatanner.com for the coaching and online, which is R-E-I-S-E-T-A-N-N-E-R. And um, what I'm working on is I'm writing... I had written some drafts of books. Um, one is on getting the best care in the hospital. The other one is on 10 reasons that new moms get depleted um, and some antidotes for that. And I also have a project called Salon Historia, Deep Storytelling for Feminist Soul, which has been on hiatus. And I look forward to having more storytelling events. Mm -hmm.